Good afternoon to all of you. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to this new special session sponsored by the AAR's American Lectures in the History of Religions Committee. And as chair of that committee, I wanted to say a few words about this enormously important lecture series, one which was initiated in the late 19th century, and the list of whose participants reads like a who's who in several of our most long-standing subfields. This ambitious lecture series was interrupted tragically in 2003 when the scheduled lecturer Willard G. Oxtaby of the University of Toronto passed away unexpectedly. In 2007, the AR's executive director, Jack Fitzmaier, tasked the best first book in the history of religions committee with exploring how best to revive this lecture series. And in 2011, a separate committee was, was formed to complete that task. Our committee has now sponsored three successful series of lectures in 2013, 2014, and 2016. And the first of these by John Gager of Princeton University was recently published by the Columbia University Press, with which we have had a contractual relationship since 1936. Gager's book, Who Made Early Christianity, is a groundbreaking look at Paul's understanding of the relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus in the first centuries of the Common Era, one which artfully combines archeology, span philology, and historical reasoning in a synthetic combination. The American Committee for Lectures on the History of Religions was established in 1892, just one year before the Chicago World's Fair and Parliament on the World's Religions. Its mandate was to sponsor, and I quote, popular courses in the history of religions, somewhat after the style of the Hibbert Lectures in England, to be delivered by the best scholars of Europe and this country in various cities, such as Baltimore, Boston, Brooklyn, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and others. End quote. In its first years, the committee was chaired by Professor Crawford H. Toy, who received his training at the University of Virginia and the University of Berlin. Professor Toy lost his position at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1879 due to his support of Darwinian evolutionary theory and the higher criticism of biblical texts. He moved to Harvard University in 1880 as professor of Hebrew and Oriental languages as well as the Dexter Lecturer on Biblical Literature. Such a career well illustrates the distinguished scholarly ambitions and scholarly commitments of the original ALHR. What strikes me most is how from its inception, this committee was committed to the study of the full panoply of human religiosity. It was antiquarian, but not antiquated. And while some of the language used in the original documents may seem quaint to us today, we would do well to recognize what they achieved already in their earliest years. In the first four years between 1894 and 1899, the ALHR sponsored courses on Buddhism, the religions of primitive peoples, as well as pre- and post-exilic Judaism. After a brief hiatus, the lecture series picked up again in 1904-1905, offering successive courses in ancient Egyptian religion, the religions of India, the religion of the Vedas, the religions of Persia, Babylon, Assyria, and China. That brings us to the 1911-1912 academic year, when the noted scholar of Roman Mithraism, Franz Cumont, of the Royal Academy of Belgium, offered a landmark course on astrology and religion among the Greeks and Romans, which was published in London and New York by G.P. Putnam in 1912. Professor Cumont gave this series of lectures successively at the Lowell Institute in Boston, the Hartford Theological Seminary, the Johns Hopkins University, the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Chicago, the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, 
the Meadville Theological Seminary in Topeka, Kansas, and finally at Columbia. We should recall that he did so without access to plane travel. And in the years immediately prior to the suspension of the ALHR in this new century, the series produced such notable scholarly works as Peter Brown's The Body and Society, Carolyn Walker Bynum's The Resurrection of the Body, Wendy Doniger's The Implied Spider, and Bruce Lawrence's New Faith's Old Fears. We all owe a real debt of gratitude to Jack Fitzmeyer, the executive director of the AR, to Robert Puckett and Kathleen McMahon in the AR central office, and to those committee members most directly involved in the revival of this August lecture series. I want especially to mention Pamela Klassen and Ibrahim Musa in that regard. Ibrahim Musa is professor of Islamic studies at Notre Dame University, housed jointly in the Department of History and the Kroc Institute for International Studies. He served as the on-site host for this year's ALHR at Notre Dame and Chicago, and I'd like to invite him to the podium to introduce this year's 2016 American Lecture in the History of Religions, Dr. Fatima Keshevars. Will you please join me in welcoming Dr. Ibrahim Musa. Good afternoon. Thank you, Lou, and thank you to my uh, committee members uh, for helping us in making this program work, and um, we're very thankful to Professor Fatima Keshavar for um, accepting our invitation. Professor Fatima Keshavar, our distinguished lecturer for the 2016 American Lectures in the History of Religions series, was born in the city of Shiraz. Shiraz is at least 4,000 years old. More than that, it is the home of some of Persia's greatest literary figures, such as Saadi in the 13th century and Hafez in the 14th century. Describing his city, the city of his birth, Saadi says, the like of the pure and humble souls of Shiraz, I have seen nowhere else. May God bless this land, my love of the people of this unadulterated so soil from Damascus and Greece has brought me back. After formative studies in Persian literature in Shiraz, Fatima Keshavaz spent several years studying library, archive, and information sciences in which she earned two master's level degree, degrees, one in the city of her birth and the other in London. This was followed by an award-winning doctoral dissertation at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London on Persian manuscripts. Professor Keshavaz began her academic career at Washington University St. Louis where she spent more than two decades giving leadership to multiple initiatives. Today, she is the Roshan Institute Chair in Persian Language and Literature and directs the Roshan Institute for Persian Studies at the University of Maryland, College Park. In her multiple writings on the study of religion and literature, Professor Keshavars gives attention to a, to a very important aspect of thought. This aspect, as the late Shahab Ahmad in his book, What is Islam, pointed out, pointed out with the non-prescriptive discourses of art, poetry, music, architecture, literature, and philosophy that were once part of the intellectual and epistemological toolkit of scholars in the Islamic past. But in, in the formation of today's scholars of religion, and especially in the training of Muslim clerical authorities, this aspect is severely neglected. In the Western academic study of Islam and Muslim societies, those ancient sages and poets of Persia are hardly studied. Keshavaz tells us in her own engaging and remarkable style how numerous energetic modern Iranian literary voices from Farooq Sadek Hidayat to Sohrab Sepehri and many others 
constantly alluded to, enhanced and subverted the themes and ideas of the great pre-modern Persian poets. In short, the history of religion and literature, in her view, is akin to the practice of musical counterpoint. We hear both the sounds and the silences from different players in an orchestra. In the work Keshavas, in her work Keshavas does, we hear lyrics that stretch over nearly a millennium. And the reason her work gains so much importance is that it enriches us with cosmopolitan messages that remain relevant to the human condition. One of the themes that inflects several aspects of Keshavaz's writings is the sacred. Who and what the divine is and how we apprehend this complexity or whether we call it a mystery with themes of great interest to all kinds of Islamic actors in history, be they theologians, poets, mystics, and even political theorists. Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, who dies in 1111 to mention but one figure, thought that God was unknowable, yet he also insisted that what could, one could indeed experience the divine. In, his, in this lecture series titled Unsilencing the Sacred, Poetic Conversations with the Divine, those of us who were fortunate to attend the previous lectures heard of how influential figures, as well as other less well-known ones, figured out how to talk about the sacred. Professor Keshavaz calls this exploration of the sacred, sacred making, namely how we commune with the divine, with words, emotions, and our bodies. Today we will hear more on this topic. In a very important recent work, Recite in the Name of the Red Rose, Poetic Sacred Making in the 20th Century Iran, Keshavaz writes that the sacred, the secular, the mystical are not static concepts. In her view, these concepts constantly morph and take new forms and shapes. She seeks in her work, as the philosopher William Gass would say, she seeks in language the imprint of reality. Why not? As Gass adds, reality shapes the syntax of our sentences. Every time we speak, when we describe our world in times before ours, then our speech is indeed a response to the world. And the world as we know it is a reflection of the way we speak. Could this formula of the world and language also apply to the divine and to the sacred? Professor Keshavars does wrestle with these questions and more. She goes on to discuss how 20th century Iranian poets and writers engage the complex, to quote her, and controversial question of the sacred with artistry, boldness, and originality. But she constantly puts these contemporary voices into conversation with the great poets Saadi, Hafez, Iraqi, and Omar Khayyam, among others. Keshavaz gives visibility to multiple themes in Persian poetry. Significant aspects of the writings of Saadi and Rumi show that they are the masters of the formation of the self. They also cultivate cosmop a cosmopolitan mindset in their world where they flourished alongside people of different faiths, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, and Zoroastrians. There is complexity to life. In, Islamic, in Islam, culture is building. The making of character through poetry and verse, through mysticism and music, through education and learning. Everything that some versions of tyrannical orthodoxy prohibits or despises, like fine art, was once part of a robust tradition for a long time. How can some members of Muslim orthodoxy also love Rumi and Attar and think of themselves as their devotees, but also adhere fastidiously to a law that no longer resonates with their conditions? That answer will take too long 
and the speaker had already answered it in previous lectures. But when you read Keshavaz's work, you realize that there is a tapestry of culture between Sharia, the ethical tradition, and between the mystical and the poetic, but also between the poetic and the normativity of ethics, where many unspoken things happen. It is just not that well known and does not enjoy visibility. Professor Keshavaz is also a published poet and an author of six monographs. If anyone is interested in ethics and cosmopolitanism, I would recommend her book, Lyrics of Life, Saadi on Love, Cosmopolitanism, and the Care of the Self, published in 2015. In it, Keshavaz does a masterful engagement with this important thinker. Reading mystical lyric, the case of Jalaluddin Rumi, and reciting the name of Red Rose were both winners of the Choice Magazine Award. Professor Keshavars is also a public intellectual and her work has been widely publicized and received by diverse audiences. The radio show Speaking of Faith, featuring her uh, one hour long episode, The Ecstatic Faith of Rumi with Krista Tippett, received the 2008 Peabody Award. In the same year, she was awarded the Herschel Walker Peace and Justice Award. In 2013, Keshavars was named Poet of the Month by NPR's Grace Cavallari host of poetry and the poet. Another of important works is Jasmine and Stars, reading more than Lolita in Tehran. This book was, a well, was well received. It was viewed as an excellent counterpoint to Azhar Nafisi's, um, Azhar Nafisi's reading Lolita in Tehran. In this work, Professor Keshavaz tried to create a modern Iranian literary and cultural landscape that was different to the negative one and partial one portrayed by Nafisi. Books like The Trouble with Islam by Irshad Manji are not viewed as objectionable because they document what needs correction, or like Nafisi's book. Many would agree with the critique. The problem is that when such authors paint a picture that suggests that there's nothing redeeming in Islam or Muslim societies, such narratives aid and abet Islamophobia and Orientalism. Jasmine and Stars shows that cultural life in Iran is a complex one. The people that people live meaningful and flourishing lives without the need for a Western rescue effort is one of the important messages. Islamic cultures, Keshavaz eloquently shows, are naturally cosmopolitan at their best. What reading Lolita and the Trouble with Islam kinds of books omit is to tell us how human beings flourish with all the anxieties and challenges in many parts of the Muslim world, but especially in Iran given the geopolitics for the past three decades or more. Everything gets skewed, not only about Iran, but also about Islam. In Jasmine and Stars, Fatima talks about the significance of her grandmother's prayer rug that was always scented with the fragrance of Jasmine. That accounts for one dimension of the title. But there's a very moving chapter called My Uncle the Painter. In that chapter, she talks about a visit back to Shiraz and a visit to her uncle. I read this passage to you because in some way, in some way, it also illustrates the various installments of these ALHR, AAR lectures that she gave previously at Notre Dame, Northwestern Elmhurst College, and the University of Chicago, where she provided us with deep readings into the work of Omar Khayyam, Hafez, Shira, Hafez of Shiraz, Saadi, Rumi, and Attar. The, leg the legacy of these poets and the culture uh, represents a thousand years tapestry in Keshavaz's words. Here is how she portrays a section of a conversation with uncle. She says, I had a short and delightful exchange with him a few years ago. She reminisces about his humor, and then she says about that conversation. 
how much we say to each other in a few words. We can do that because the bigger story has already been told for us. We share that thousand-year-old thick forest of images and ideas that have grown out of the seeds of thought and play planted by Attar, Rumi, and others. When one of us picks a single leaf, points to a rare bird on a tree, or touches a branch, a song begins to resonate through the forest. This one is a memory that will stay with me like the fragrance of the jasmine wrapped in my grandmother's prayer rug. Today she will give another installment of that bigger story that has already been told for us. Please help me to welcome Fatima Keshavaz to give the final lecture in the ALHR 2016 series, Unsilencing the Sacred Conversations with the Divine. Please help me to welcome her. Thank you, Ibrahim and Lou. Um, this is a journey that started a year ago when I was um, fortunate to get invited to um, prepare the series and deliver it. And um, about two weeks ago, as I was delivering the lectures, the interaction with people, uh, the gracious hosting of Ibrahim, both intellectually as well as socially, has really left me with uh, memories that will enrich my work for a long time to come. So thank you all, and I hope that um, what I share with you today um, will be a step in the direction of um, recognizing the significance of literature in what we do to understand the study, to improve the study of religion and to understand religion better. Um, what I'm doing today is, in a way, a kind of kaleidoscope of what I have been doing, and but uh, that is the previous um, episodes that uh, of, of this series, but putting them together in a new way so that um, I get a chance to also explain to you and describe to you why I am going to a certain anecdote or a certain episode or a certain uh, poem and what are the methodological and conceptual significance of these pieces for what I am putting together for this whole series. Um, so I would be referring on and off to um, a number of poets, um, mostly Nasser Khosrow, Omar Khayyam, Abu Said, Eraghi, Attar, Hafez, and Saadi, who lived between the 11th and the 14th century. Um, and I'm not really doing a um, historical study of their work. I'm not going to dig into what happened around them in any depth here. I will provide some kind of um, historical contextualization for the publication. Um, what I'm doing uh, here is borrowing their voices to create this tapestry, which I am hoping would be helpful to us to understand religion better. Um, also, in the series, I'm doing something which I will not have time to do here. Uh, in every poet, every episode, I have in interjected my personal experience, whether I was a, you know, when I was a high school um, uh, kid and I studied for my exams in the garden of Hafez's mausoleum, or whether I shared something with my uncle about a poet, or whether the fact that my father sent me a copy of the Divan of Iraqi right in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war when I was terrified about who would be bombed next. And he thought that you couldn't live your life without having 
Divana Varaghi with you. When he found out I didn't have one, he just found one and mailed it to me. Um, which I think it's all um, very relevant, uh, despite being a, a extremely personal, very relevant to our understanding of this literature but, and what it could be and what it could, could mean to all of us today. I also would like to um, very briefly uh, say that none of these poets that I will touch on I'm going to present to you as a single individual who's not doesn't have any likes or peers or as important as a single um, uh, person, but rather I'm presenting them as archetypal figures, people who represent patterns and ways of speaking about things that in fact is much broader than they themselves. So I'm hoping that that would be what they would do for us. Um, I would like to start by making some um, observations in very general conceptual sense. I believe that history of religion will be enriched significantly by taking account of the ways in which Persian poets of the medieval times, and I, of course I'm not excluding the later poets, but in this case I'm focusing on the medieval era. So this study would be significantly um, enriched um, uh, by keeping in mind the way these poets of medieval time kept their emotional geography welcoming and inclusive, um, their social environment lively, and their subjectivities self-critical, vibrant, and vocal. And they did this by keeping the divine echo strong in their poetry through the modality of continuing a variety of conversations with the divine. These conversations were neither subdued and obedient and uh, unidirectional, um, nor they could really be categorized as a limited genre. As you will see, it's really expansive and it, 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 it moves through a variety of formal genres of poetry that they produced. These echoes, these echoes of the divine, um, kept alive and, and resonant in these conversations are needed today to bring the desire for the sacred within us into the serious debate of religion and what religion is about. In a way, in my opinion, in a way that the joy, the enchantment, and the longing would become legitimate parts of this debate. Not icing on the cake, not something informal that's on the side, but something that is um, an important part of our social imaginary, and therefore it has to be a part of the study of religion. I am hoping that um, this kind of conversation on medieval Persian poetry uh, would free us from a number of things. It would free us from, if you look at it from a scientific perspective, from a universe of physics which is entailed in certain physical laws and therefore not viewed as being understood beyond that kind of entailment and often in very reductive perception of these laws. 
uh, other people have spoken about it, so this is by no means my invention. Same is true of, I'm hoping this will be another step in freeing us from a kind of reductive natural scientific methodology which is constantly applied to our studies of the depths of our religion, our literature, and so on. But again, that has been talked about. What I'm also hoping, and it is very much um, a personal, if you like, I can even call it a quest, though um, that could be a limiting word, to free us from an overpowering binary of a God-dominated versus a godless universe. So I think I find this binary extremely harmful. It, it, it keeps us imprisoned in these two corners and stops us from kinds of um, productive conversations that could happen between various sides. Now in terms of um, uh, conceptual, uh, um, I, I, I gave you a number of main ideas. Methodologically, um, I guess I'm working with the idea coming from the studies of um, our biosphere, if you like, viewing life as a relentlessly emerging force that is the site of unprestated becomings all the time. So in other words, we now accept that our biosphere is not predictable, that it's full of unprestated moments that are um, radical becomings that we need to pay attention to. Um, I would like in my study of literature and religion to foreground that idea that um, uh, by bringing to our attention enchanting moments during which this unprestated emergent life force is identified by these poets and verbalized into these conversations. Now, um, the presence of the sacred has been very um, central to all of these conversations, and I would like to um, underline the fact that from where I approach it, this presence of the sacred is very seminal to, to the whole atmosphere. Um, last but not least, I would like to underline in what I'm doing with these concepts in this sets of uh, presentations and the, the um, uh, resulting uh, publication is to keep the unknown and the surprise um, on the foreground in these works. Um, to use a um, quote from George Bataille, um, I find this kind of readiness or rather acknowledgement of the unknown and the surprise, that the function of it being is stealing from the mind the answers that it already has. And this I see time and again happening in the medieval literature that I'm working with. And it is, I think we will do well in study of mysticism and in study of religion to keep that component um, alive. Let me just say a little bit more about that because this is, comes from a quote in which George Bataille says, I wanted experience. Now he's being critical of what mystical experience is defined as a journey and has a beginning and a middle and an end. And he says, I wanted experience to lead me where it was leading, not to some end given in advance. And I say at once that it does not lead to a harbor, but to a place of bewilderment of nonsense. 
It steals from the mind the answers that it already has. So I'm very much hoping that these series of studies keep that in mind, that to be ready to run into these kinds of surprises. Now, why conversations? Why do I go for modality on co of conversations? Because I believe that it transforms what can otherwise be a kind of ossified religious authority, kind of what we have defined, what we have written about time and again. Now, in these, uh, these conversations become spaces that are suitable for dynamic exchanges. And in this dynamic exchange, and I hope to point to a few of them here, in this dynamic exchange, the humanity finds an active and evolving role for, for itself, a presence uh, and a kind of uncharted path in which there is self-discovery, self-assertion, self-redefinition, and it really is a diverse um, set of opportunities in the space of these conversations with the divine for the humanity to um, stay aware of who we are, what are we doing here, um, who is this presence we are connecting with. Um, and poetry. Poetry, maybe I don't need to even say that. Of course, poetry has tremendous possibility. It has room for struggle with the finest philosophical um, concepts and details without evading commitment. I do not think that the, that the ambiguity in the poetry uh, serves a kind of evasion of commitment, but rather avoiding the process of naming and finalization. It also gives us a kind of very effective and very, um, I guess effective is the word, <laughs> way of um, presenting an argument um, with a kind of certainty that can only be defined as poetic certitude. And this is my favorite example. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have heard it before. It's very much when Hamlet says to Horatio that there, uh, there are things, Horatio, in heaven and earth, there are more things in, in heaven and earth than they fit in your philosophy. So there is no argument for this. There's no justification. There's no research done. Indeed, if Hamlet said, Horatio, I think there are more things in heaven and earth, or I believe there are more things, it would be totally destroyed. What works is that absolutely poetic certitude that comes um, with, uh, with the way the language is masterfully used. Um, also, last but not least, again, I think the Persian literature provides this amazing space called the safe space of dubious attributions, which enabled poets to speak um, about um, items, ideas, you know, issues that may have not been so easily open to them and what they did was not discarded, was not forgotten. It would be viewed as, well, maybe attributed to them, mansoop, you know, maybe not for certain, but they would always stay in their collections of poetry. In fact, because of being um, attributed, and being kind of a little bit dubious, they would be put separately, so they kind of won't dissolve in the bigger body of literature that was there, and they will come to the attention of the reader. So with all of that in mind, um, I wanna take you to a moment of 
such a conversation that I've been talking about, which I call candid conversations with the divine, where Nasser Khosrow, um, the greatest smiley thinker and poet of the 11th century, um, a, also a great philosopher, a traveler whose record of um, urban areas of the Muslim land is um, unparalleled, and he writes, he's talking to God. In us, you planted the seed of mutiny, the very moment of our creation. Whatever the farmer plants, the heaven and the earth nurture. The one who plants barley cannot expect to reap wheat at harvest. When you started everything yourself, does it make sense to punish us in the end? Besides, if you created us to obey, then what function was there for Satan? To be honest, there is a lot more I would like to mention, but I am, when I get to this point, I'm somewhat paralyzed with fear. Now, let me give you another even more daring example, again attributed to Nasser Khosrow, and then show you what I see as that spacious, that, that area in which he's seeking to redefine not only his relationship with God, but his own persona. Now, in this other um, episode, which is shorter, he, first of all, refers to himself in third person, which is very interesting, creating a little bit of distance between himself. And then he also brings other observers into the conversation. There are bystanders there. We don't know who they are, but they're certainly important and in connection with him. So he says, Nasser Khosrow was passing on a road. Nasser Khosrow, where okay, Drunk and unfettered by his senses, but not like ordinary drunks. He came by a public toilet and a cemetery alongside the road. Turning to onlookers, he said loud and clear, look carefully, folks. These are the world's bounties, and these are those who consume them. So this could be totally blasphemous. It could be um, really something beyond the pale, beyond the, the, the limits, except for he has something very important to say to us and by saying it to God. And if you did not wish me to ask such questions, you should have created me like other animals. So in other words, this isn't about just being angry, just throwing something out there to show he's not afraid, and in fact, he confesses to being fearful about what he says. But the idea is, we're not like the other animals. We were created to ask questions. So let us use this moment. Let us open this space. Now, Omar Khayyam comes along and um, and around the same time, just a little bit later, and a lot of us are familiar with his arguments with God because of Fitzgerald's translations, and you know, um, he's, a, he's a mathematician, and he's an absolutely beautiful way um, to work with language. So let me give you the Persian for this. The primordial mysteries, neither you understand nor I. This veiled language, 
neither you read nor I. Behind the curtain, there is the talk of me and you. There is talk of me and you. When the curtain is removed, neither you remain nor I. But the difference between the approach that Chayam has to these um, assertions that at times become conversations with the divine is that he actually sees himself on par with the creator, the artist creator, or the artist par excellence. And he loves his work. He creates something, Omar Khayyam, he doesn't want to break it. So why is that God does that? When the owner of things prepared the synthesis that is our nature, why did he leave out important ingredients now and then? If the outcome was good, what is the purpose of breaking us? And if it is not, who is to blame for the faulty creation? So this goes on to say, God, I broke, you know, a, a, a jar, the jar of wine, but I was drunk, but you're not drunk. Why are you doing this to us? And so on and so forth, which is, in fact, we know that was pretty well known at the time because somebody with the stature of, um, uh, of, a, of, a, uh, of the author of Mirsa de Lebat, uh, Najm Razi, answers him and says, if you had the eye of the spirit and you could see the inner world, you wouldn't be asking such trivial questions. But whatever you know, the argument between the two, you can tell that these, uh, these rubaiis, these uh, uh, quatrains had a major resonance in the cultures in which they were produced. Now, um, I am in these presentations jumping over big chunks of, you know, <laughs> Um, contextualization and history and so on simply because we cannot do it here. But let me just say that I would like us now to imagine Sufi poets entering the picture. Uh, you might say that Nasser Khosrow, of course, did have his mystical uh, dimension, but he also has a great rational, very uh, philosophy-oriented, I shouldn't counter uh, present rationality and Sufism, but philosophy kind of. Um, but enter uh, the Sufis into the picture. And they're by no means less critical, less thoughtful, less questioning of this whole affair. They feel totally helpless, and they ask very similar questions. I am slain by love. Abu Sayyid, the mega Sufi master of his time, who was born in 1968 in Khorasan again, right? I'm slain by love. This world is none other than a slaughterhouse. I am not here to eat and drink, but to be cooked in this fire. I do not entertain any fancy dreams of paradise. Paradise improved a hundredfold is still a torment compared to what I want. So it is the same kind of what is going on, you know, what am I here for? except for one thing, there is longing for something. There is very strong and very open longing for something. There is a sense of beauty around this person, and these two um, pull the poet, and the force of the, 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 this two pulls the discourse forward in a uh, particular direction. Now, there's this big cliche that, you know, 
the, the, des the journey is the destination. That certainly is the case with these Sufis and with Abu Sayyid. Longing is all there is for us. We don't know what is beyond that. But that is the transforming space, the space of longing, the space of the human inner quest. And it is not a blind pull in that direction. This desire is enlivened by the presence of beauty, of, of attraction to beauty, beauty that's both, both sensual and metaphorical. فردا که قیامت آشکارا گردد ابو سعید رایز فردا که قیامت آشکارا گردد و از بیم حساب روی ها گردد زرد من حسن تو را به کفن هم پیش روم گویم که حساب من از این باید کرد Tomorrow when men and women gather for judgment fear of being held accountable written on faces I carry your beauty in the palm of my hands and say, this is the explanation for all that I have done. So these dialogues suggest that with kind of little education in the understanding of this vast universe we are there, we should be discouraged from calculating, anticipating, and ossifying this vastly charted and delightfully undefined inner territory that we have and allow it to explore, engage in verbal exchanges, and come to the brilliant rays of what um, George Bataille describes as um, wild and free and be wild and free in these conversations, in these conversations that, in fact, expand to include obedience, acceptance, sarcasm, anger, discontent, and even the funniest of jokes. Now, I want to take us a, a, just a, a, a little more further um, in the history and invite a great poet of the 13th of the 14th century Hafez of Shiraz, to which um, Professor Musa also alluded, and um, I have always wanted to write on, on him. I'm very much hoping that that would happen on an um, uh, extended um, version of it at some point in the future, but I think there is great room for him here in this particular conversation. Hafez, whom I will hear not call the tongue of the unseen, as millions and millions of readers of his poetry have called him, I will call him Hafez the Skywalker. And I do believe, and I, I hope I will establish that for you here, that he indeed is the Skywalker. Now, was he a Zoroastrian? Was he a Sufi? Did he drink wine? Was he up in heaven or down on earth? It, it's just, a, a, host of, it's just a small part of a host of questions that he has thrown at us, none of which have an answer and would ever really have an answer. You could find as many re references and allusions to a Mary practice, to a Zoroastrian practice, than you can find to the Quranic allusion, which is absolutely everywhere in his poetry. So, but here, more than anything else, 
I am fascinated with the poetic complexity of the emotional geography that he creates, which is an interconnected architecture between the heaven and the earth. And if indeed life is a radical emergence, which our complex theories and biologists tell us every day, um, if it is a persistent becoming beyond our knowing, then we need a way to be able to also constantly redefine ourselves in order to stay in a kind of meaningful conversation with this persistently becoming new forms of life. What Bachelard, for example, calls ontological uh, amplification of the self with talking about poets. So um, I believe, and I'm going to just present snippets of that here, that Hafez does that self-amplification or the tool that he gives us to be able to ontologically amplify ourselves um, through a process which I call world building. And again, that's not a new idea. People have talked about world building. There's a beautiful reading of a passage by Victor Hugo when he's sitting in Germany and on top of a hill and is looking as a, at a patch of grass and he's seeing all these little beetles and bees and ants and little uh, grass and he describes it as if it was a vast world. So it's by no means you know, an invention of Hafez or, or anybody anybody else, but he's certainly a master world builder. And I'm hoping to show that this world is an interconnection of the heaven and the earth. This is an example of world building by Hafez. My heart forgets the green landscape when it sees the moon of your face. For like a cypress, it, my heart, is bound to earth, and like a tulip's red heart, it is filled with sorrow. Look at the violet. It compares itself to your dark, perfumed curls. Please stay aware, it's still a conversation. Okay. Look at the violet. It compares itself to your dark, perfumed hair, a simple servant and such extraordinary ambitions. Come, come to the garden and see that next to the rose's throne, tulip stands like a royal attendant holding a goblet of wine. Well, up to here, it's absolutely stunningly elegant, but it's a beautiful description of nature, building a world in nature. And here, our Skywalker enters. He's like, okay, are we just talking about this garden here or are there other places? And then he goes on, The night of darkness and the desert. And at first you're really surprised. It should be the darkness of the night. Zolmat shab. But no, it's Shabe Zolmat, the night of darkness. So it's the first opening into an inner space, a subjective way of the desert there, the bare open space there. The Kujatavan Residan. Where can I get? Where do I go? 
مگران که شمع رویت بره هم چراغ دارد except if your face holds the lamp above the road and he uses the word چراغ which is the most disworldly lamp you can see in any household it's not the moon it's not out there it's this connection between the inner and the outer and before i go more to this space building let me just very briefly touch on this um, we do have this illusion that the space is fully under our control you know we we uh, the skies the ocean floors the steep molten molten core we go everywhere not only that we have everything planned it's almost impossible with you know all of the uberization of the travel and everything it's almost impossible to get lost to not know where we are um, poverty is ghettoized out of view immigrants would be walled off you know heaven and earth are disconnected in many ways one is exalted up there and the other one is down here so in a way the message of Hafez is here most timely the messages we must learn to become the architect of our own world and to fill this world with the transformative echoes that give us back the spaces that we have closed on ourselves for whatever reason. And you know, there, that could be a totally different debate. We could go into that discussion of why, why is it that we go on the internet, which could be a whole world, and constantly surf the same spaces we always do, how others identify us and send us always to the same spaces that they think we want to, and how all of these limitations really draw walls around our, um, our buildings, our uh, inner uh, spaces, and, as well as outer spaces. So let me show you how, what I mean by this becoming the architect of our own world and creating transformative echoes in it through a ghazal of Hafez, which is probably among the one of the best knowns, though you could say that for almost any of them. I used to open the Divan of Saadi and say, oh, that's my favorite, until one day my husband said, is there anyone that is not? And so Hafez, this is very true of Hafez too. Buya khoshatu harkez baad sabaw shenid az yar aashnaw sohan aashnaw shenid. Now this is a conversation with the beloved. Taking in your sweet scent that spreads in the breeze of sabaw is like listening to the tale of love told by a loving friend. And then from there, immediately, he starts building a space, a sanctuary, um, which we are going to enter. And you get a feeling that, okay, is this gonna be a mosque? It's gonna be a temple? But to our shock, we find that what he's highlighting here is indeed not what you expect to see in a mosque. I use wine to revive the inner faculties of my soul, for I have sensed the scent of hypocrisy in the houses of worship. So it's a wine house, okay? We're walking in the direction of a, of a wine house. And um, thinking really mostly is describing, the way there is describing people around and you get there and then you hear this declaration almost. 
سر خدا که عارف سالک به کس نگفت در حیرتم که باد فروش از کجا شنید Where did the wine seller learn the divine mystery? Tell me that. For the religious masters do not share their secret with ordinary folk. So, again, the conversation has opened a very interesting space before us. This, first of all, this wine merchant has turned divine, a um, simple shopkeeper somewhere. How did he hear the secret of the mystery of the divine? We don't know. How did he even establish this line of communication? And the elitist religious figure, Aref Salek, who didn't give this mystery to, to people around him, he must be kind of maybe cold and callous, not so much caring. Maybe he didn't have the secret in the first place. Maybe he even pretended he had the, the, the mysteries in order to get to where he was getting. And again, all of these just add the, to the, uh, are added to the pile of unanswered questions which are supposed to remain unanswered, except for he gives us hints about who the wine seller may be. And I'm sure that you have already guessed that, that you know we leave this ghazal thinking that isn't Hafez himself the wine seller? Isn't he giving us these mysteries in uh, you know, goblets of wine, aren't they his own words, his own approach to, to, the divine, um, to the divine mysteries. Now, these are all spaces, and there are many of them that have kind of doors opening, either from inner spaces to beautiful gardens outside, or outside going into uh, debates like that, but then he becomes more of a heaven conscious and, you know, kind of sky walking, as I, as I call it. Um, starts with verses, again, very, very well known in the culture as um, I never heard a melody lovelier than the voice of love and its lasting echo in this ever-turning cosmic dome. So I want us at times to look up there. And when you look up there, it gives you these amazing scenes. That all saman na'ajab gar be gufte ya hafiz, samaw az zuhre be rakhsaw varad masihara. Now Jesus in the fourth heaven, as far as the readers of hafiz poetry are concerned, he is up there. And so the verse tells us when hafiz sings his poetry in heavens, um, do not be surprised if Venus plays her lute and Christ rises to dance. So you have constantly this um, connection where you could come back down to the wine cellar and explore all kinds of very interesting mysteries of yourself and your life or be up there to keep the two connected. What is important is that these two are connected. And let's see how, how clear uh, he, he can be about this. He actually, how deliberate he is about this. Last night I saw angels. Where are they? Knocked on the door of the wine house. So now they're visiting him. 
They kneaded the clay of Adam and placed it into a wine cup. Citizens of the divine sanctuary, high up in heavens, citizens of the divine sanctuary, high up in heavens, stop by to have a glass of wine with a poor fellow like me. Well, it is very interesting that the angels are drinking wine with him, um, and clearly he got away with it. There wasn't any, any serious issue. But what is even more fascinating is that the drop of wine that is mixed with the clay is really is the Quranic reference to the divine spirit that is breathed in the clay of Adam. So in the same breath, the angels are drinking wine, but God is breathing in the clay of Adam. And if we had any doubts how Quranic he wants to be about this, he goes to a very clear and well-known verse of the Quran, um, that God is speaking, I, I offered my trust to the heavens and the earth and the, and the mountains, and they were afraid, and they ref refused to carry it, refrained from carrying it, and Adam, Adam carried that, and he was Zalum and Jahula, he was ignorant and also, um, I guess, how do we translate the, uh, Jah Jahul is certainly very ignorant and Zalum uh, unjust, I guess, would be a good translation. But how is, how is he alluding to that? Now, the heavens could not carry the divine trust. They drew the lot, and my name, the crazy one, appeared on it. So we are very much in the divine territory and in the wine territory. And in the end, the crazy destitute fellow is to carry the divine trust, and that's not even surprising to us, the readers. But it is enchanting. It is an example of bringing God into the wine house for a conversation and a co-creative experience. I really want to repeat that. It is a co-creative experience. It's something that is created within the text in the Hafezian language, which is actually created heavenly by the divine he deeply believes in. And therefore, um, the humanity accepts foolishly, um, read here, due to extreme drunkenness, um, a Hafezian commentary, um, the carrying of the load that the heaven and the earth cannot do. Now, this is no, no place to have um, extensive discussions of, of theological debates um, on that. I want to just take a moment and bring in Sadi's voice before um, we end here to um, to point to the fact that this love 
in the, the, the understanding and experience of this love in the hands of Sadi become a strolling in a garden, which is very much here down on earth. And it is disworldly, it's full of desire which is sensual and embodied, and we can all relate to as human beings, even those who may not want to be on a spiritual path or are not aware of that other dimensions of it. Um, again, in the interest of time, let me not do any theorizing about Sadi's work. Let me just say that I, I recently, as I think Professor Musa pointed to, finished a monograph on him, and I was amazed by the way he brought these totally familiar patterns and build them into each other into completely surprising ways. So in, in what I call shifting fields of similarity, you, if you look at the themes that he's touching on, he has to come across as extremely conventional, extremely ordinary, but then look at his poetry, he has put them all together in tremendously innovative, exciting, and vibrant ways. One thing I want to touch on here is that this garden is also completely open to homoerotic imagery. Um, it is very embodied, very real. Sadi openly talks about, for example, in a very autobiographical way, which gives him in, gets him into trouble in later years when, um, particularly in modern times in 19th and 20th century, where critics cannot handle that comfortably. Um, when he talks about autobiographically about being in love with um, a male figure and not just a young um, metaphorical kind of embodying divine beauty, but just a very ordinary um, another male human being in one episode of that is when he runs into a young grammarian and they have a long conversation and after days Sadi decides to leave because he does not want to get any more emotionally involved with this young man who finds out that he's leaving and actually doesn't know he's Sadi. Sadi loves to go you know, under uh, hidden identities and be unknown. So this man stops him the day he's leaving town and says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? And he gives him back an anecdote that I once knew in remote mountains a great man uh, who had abandoned the world and was living there. And I said, why are you living there? You know, the, the city people are going to love you if you come to, to, to the city. And he, that um, hermit, answers him. The city, he replied, is full of desirable beauties. When the road is too muddy, even elephants can slip. So, yes, he is, uh, he uh, uh, transforms himself into an, Elephant, uh, nonetheless, um, the, you know, the desire is very uh, clearly described and uh, throughout the body of his poetry in this garden, which I call the kind of archetypal garden of ever-blooming love, this is also a branch of it, and that love is action, is intentional, and the role of the lover is to allow this to be burning and transforming them. Um, 
there is a really beautiful and sensual ghazal of Sadi. If I have not exhausted all of my time, I might read it to you. But let me just, in the interest of really closing the circle of this conversation, go to the very last talk that I gave, which was called Hubbub in the, White, in the Wine House. Did I say the White House? Yes. <laughs> Hubbub in the Wine House, the mutinous voice of Atar and Iraqi, God, we need them. Okay, um, I started the series with the candid conversation and ending them with their mutinous voices. Why? Why? Because I believe that this wine house that Atar and Iraqi create, and later on Hafez goes and knocks on the door there, this really becomes, gradually expands and becomes the abode we live in and we gradually expand and become the wine house. So the mutiny and the clamor is in us. First of all, is primordial, is created in us. That's what love is about. And secondly, it is in us, nowhere else. We are that wine house. So what mutiny did her eyes plot this time, Atar, uh, I'm sorry, Araki tells us. The uproar comes from all directions. What wine did her lips serve today? A sip intoxicated every soul there is. And then he goes to that with that kind of poetic certitude that I was telling you. He goes, he gives the justification. Cops have no purpose but to hold pure wine. My soul is a mirror for your countenance. Your face reflects in it, clear as daylight. Flowers all have the color of your face. Why else would they look so handsome? So, life is about clearing up the abode of your existence, opening up, allowing you to find your mutinous voice, and what comes after that is simply an afterglow, a process of being and done consistently. And so much so that the process of being undone has to be undone itself. You know, honestly, at some point, it looks like a crazy hide and seek with existence. I'm undone, and I have to, the undone, being undone has to be undone, and that has to go on. That, that for, forever, and, and Rumi actually expresses that beautifully. Love is flying high up in the sky, tearing a hundred veils every instant. That's what love is about. Just tearing apart, opening up. The first breath is giving up breathing. The first step stepping away from steps. So it is again all about being the architect of that existence that could be a wine house filled with mutinous voices that has to be constantly destroyed and built again. Destroyed and built again. Let me end with one ghazal of Atar, actually. 
um, I didn't really touch on in any serious way yet, but hopefully in the actual written part, I will do more justice to who he is. Um, but I've chosen this because I think it's one of the most mutinous things that a poet can ever do. And that is taking his own language apart as he's speaking it. At that very moment, he's speaking it. Glory to that moon, that concealment within concealment, who rises and reveals worlds within worlds. What am I doing rambling about revealed and concealed? Love unfolds in the domain above these notions. Now I have evoked the concept of above and below, and love is surely outside these realms. Did I just speak of outside and inside? Oh Lord, this business of speaking is a complete waste. And so, in a way, it is um, ironic and somewhat outrageous that we end a talk on conversations about how you cannot speak. <laughs> but you know what, if it's not ironic, and outrageous, it does not attract, attract Persian mystics. So there you have it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I think we have a few minutes. I don't know if you want to ask. Could we? So, I know you might want to be going to other talks and events, but. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs>